Well, turn with me, if you would, to uh, Galatians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have one at the welcome desk, which is right out the doors, right in the center of the foyer. Uh, with brand new Bible, we'd love to give you for free. So please uh, pick that up. You know, a lot of the songs that we've already sung today, and we sing throughout the holidays, talk about Emmanuel. Of course they do. This is a word that comes right from the Bible. It's a word that uh, has appeared in multiple of the songs we've sung already this morning. It's a word that means God with us. That's the promise of Christmas. That's the hope of Christmas, God with us. And yet it's not hard to look around at our world and see what's going on and to ask, is he? Is God with us? Is he with us when it seems like our culture is spiraling downward, rejecting all of the norms that we once held so dearly? Uh, is God with us when we see these incredible and these senseless acts of violence in our world? Is God with us when a deranged shooter opens fire in an elementary school or a shopping mall? Is God with us when that one thing you've been praying for for so long you don't get? at least not in the way you've been praying. Is God with us when you are mistreated at work or misunderstood at home or you go through a tragedy you never imagined? Is God with us when uh, our child gets sick or we lose someone that we love prematurely way be before it seems like that person should have gone on? Is God with us when we look around at our world and, and we have a hard time making sense of everything that's going on? Is, is God with us when you've had certain plans and dreams for so long and yet they never seem to materialize? Is God with us? What does it mean for us to sing and say, Emmanuel, God with us in our world? Again, when we're faced with confusion, disappointment, and tragedy, this morning, I just want to briefly look at three ways that God is with us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we celebrate today and tomorrow. So um, we're going to look at Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I'm going to read the whole thing. Then we're going to really camp out in verses uh, 4 through 6. But here reads the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the book of Galatians uh, is written by the Apostle Paul in the middle of the first century. Some actually regard it as the first, the earliest book of the New Testament. And it was written to a group of Christians who were scattered around what was called Galatia, which was part of the Roman Empire. It was a fairly prominent city uh, in the Roman Empire. Now it's where we would, what we would call central Turkey. Um, but these Christians, 
they were meeting in, in several churches, several places, and they had heard the gospel. Many of them, by God's grace and power, had responded to the gospel in saving faith. And yet there were some in the church, there were false teachers in the church who were saying, if you really want to be approved by God, if you really want to love, be loved by God, if you really want to experience God's favor, you have to obey uh, certain rules. Now, that's, a, that's an overly simplistic uh, view or, or explanation of Galatians. Um, but this letter that Paul writes to the church at Galatia, in it he pleads and he urges and he implores these Christians not to turn from the gospel of grace and says, actually, if you add anything else to the gospel, it ruins the whole thing. It doesn't just create sort of a, a variation of the gospel. It ruins the whole thing, creates a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so Paul reminds them of that and the importance, the centrality, the beauty, the power of the gospel uh, and the message that he, that he preached to them. And then where does he anchor his argument? He actually anchors his argument at Christmas in the birth of Christ, which he says happened, as I just read, when the fullness of time had come. Now, you, you know the story, and maybe some of you, you, you've read it already in your family gatherings, or maybe you will tomorrow morning. Uh, as Julie read so beautifully this morning, it was 2,000 years ago, roughly, in the ancient Near East, there was an unwed uh, teenage peasant girl who gave birth to a little boy in a fairly nondescript town called Bethlehem. Mary and her husband-to-be had traveled from their hometown of Nazareth. They had arrived at Bethlehem, and when they did so, there were, no, there were no hotel vacancies. There was no room in the inn. So this Jewish girl was forced to endure labor pains in an animal stable. And while there, presumably on sleeping on haystacks only yards away from the animals, Mary delivered her first child, now, some of the details were, were fairly uh, common. In fact, there were, you know, there were no hospitals around at that time, and um, you know, delivering birth at home was a normal thing, and you weren't surrounded by a full medical team. But there were some of the details that were actually strikingly uncommon. Uh, an angel appeared to some nearby shepherds, which had, had to have been a terrifying thing, and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so this angel appears. And then after the single angel appears, a whole host of angels appear. And they praise God. They say, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So the, shepherd knew, the shepherds knew something about this is different. Something about this is uncommon and unusual. This was the boy that the whole world had been waiting on. But it does beg a question, doesn't it? Why now? Why, why then? I mean, of all the time in history, why that very moment? Why, in the words of the Apostle Paul, was Christ born, quote, at the fullness of time? Well, there are all kinds of explanations that have been given for why this particular moment, and, and we don't have time in this 28-minute message to go into all the different explanations or uh, offerings, um, but I think the simplest and probably the, I think the most faithful explanation, at least when you consider the, the language, the original language, the, the overall context, was this was the right time because this was the exact moment 
that God had already determined to fulfill a centuries-old promise that he made, a promise that God actually made way back at creation. Galatians 4.4, Paul says that Jesus was born of a woman. Now, that's not a throwaway phrase. Uh, When Adam and Eve, the first humans, were created, they enjoyed sweet fellowship with God. They were sinless, and they lived in this garden, and they were given everything that God had provided. They had every reason to obey God. Uh, I mean, think about this. They actually were told they actually fellowshiped with God. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They were there in God's presence so they had every reason to enjoy what God has ma- had made. It was pristine. It was perfect. It was glorious. They had every reason to obey God. He was actually with them. But we know that the serpent uh, tempted them, and they succumbed to the, temp- the tempting of the serpent, and they disobeyed God, Adam and Eve. Well, Adam's single act of disobedience sent the whole world into a tailspin and actually condemned all of humanity, because Adam was the covenant head of the human race. And so Adam represented not only himself and his wife, but he represented everybody who would ever come from Adam. Of course, this means everybody who would ever be born. Adam's sin was counted as our sin. Adam's guilt was counted as our guilt. And because we share in Adam's guilt, we enter the world as those who are condemned by God and separated from the God who created us. And God would deal with Adam and Eve's rebellion. Many of you know the story. God would actually pronounce a curse on everything. Everything that had been made was cursed, including the serpent, Satan himself. To the serpent, God said, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head. The singular he there points to a singular individual. Now, while Satan may inflict pain on mankind, i.e. bruise the heel of mankind, The blow against Satan, the head of Satan, suggests a lethal, fatal blow. In other words, there would be one born of a woman who would not just bruise the serpent's head, but would crush the head of the serpent. There would be one born of a woman who would utterly destroy Satan who would ultimately usher in complete peace. When Paul says Galatians, in Galatians 4 that Christ was born of woman, he's taking us all the way back to the garden and the promise that God made in the Garden of Eden. Jesus Christ is the he who would be born of woman, who would crush the serpent's head. And when Jesus was born, that was God fulfilling an ancient promise. So, We say God is with us. We say Emmanuel, but what do we mean by that? How is God with us? Well, here's the first way that God is with us in Christ. Jesus Christ is the embodiment and constant reminder of God's faithfulness. We talked about this last week as we looked at Isaiah, and I know, you know, some of you may not have been here, but what we said was, you know, we we make a lot of promises that we fail to keep. 
We make promises all the time that we fail to keep. Now, sometimes promises are made and it's with a disingenuous spirit and we really don't plan on keeping those promises. But most of the time, I would say the promises that we fail to keep are just because we don't get around to it. It's not because of ill intent. It's just we don't get around to fulfilling our promises. And because we are so prone to failing to keep our promises for whatever reasons, we sometimes project that onto God and we have a hard time believing that God will actually keep his promises. So, you know, we, we think, well, can we really believe what God has said? And along with that, we saw last week also, there are pr plenty of promises that are really hard to measure. We don't really know if the person who's made the promise is keeping it or not. For example, I promise to love you more each day. Like we don't know. I mean, how can you measure that? Or there are some, a business may promise the most pleasant service in the industry, but how do you really measure that? And so, you know, with promises, we say, well, we don't know if God really is going to keep his promises and we don't know if we can really measure it anyway. But when God makes a promise, it is specific, concrete, and measurable. Through the prophet Isaiah, God promised that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, which he was. Through the prophet Malachi, God promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Very specific, very concrete, which he was. Through the prophet Hosea, God promised that the Messiah would be called out of Egypt, which he was. Through the prophet Isaiah, God promised that the Messiah would be from Nazareth, which he was. See, all of these promises are fulfilled in concrete and measurable ways, which means that when God makes a promise to you, you can count on God delivering. When God promised that he is with you, when he promised that he will sustain you, when he promised that he will forgive you and give you joy, when he promised that he has a future prepared for you if you are in Christ, these are promises you can count on. In Genesis, God promised that one day one would be born of a woman and he would destroy Satan and Satan enemies, Satan's enemies, which Jesus has done. Now, how would he do that? Look at verses 4 and 5 again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So if you've ever been to church before... You probably heard someone say, Christ died for sinners, right? You've heard that and probably heard it. Some of you heard it a hundred times, maybe a thousand times. And maybe you've heard it uh, by a preacher who was so fired up about delivering that good news that it almost seemed like it was bad news because it was kind of being yelled at you that Christ died for sinners. I've got a friend who's a terrific gospel preacher and a man that I loved, I love and, and, and still have regular contact with. Um, every, everything he preaches, he yells. And so even when he's delivering good news, you feel like you're getting scolded with bad news. Um, and there are times when I just want to say to him, look, when you're preaching, just think about, I don't know, puppies or babies or ice cream cones or something, just to kind of mellow out a little bit because just everything's just like he's yelling at you. Well, to his credit, though, this is a man who wakes up in the middle of the night thinking about who he can share the gospel with. 
I mean, he is so passionate about the gospel that he is regularly trying to think of, who can I share the gospel with? And so sometimes even the good news comes across uh, as bad news. But this is, the, this is a central truth of the Christian faith. Christ died for sinners. It's so important that hopefully you have heard it many times. But you've probably not heard as many times, or, or maybe even ever, Christ lived for sinners. You've heard Christ died for sinners. But maybe what you haven't heard is that Christ lived for sinners. If Jesus just died for sinners, if that's all he did, that wouldn't have been enough. See, that same Adam that I mentioned a moment ago, with, with that Adam, God established a covenant at creation. It was called the covenant of works. It went like this. God, if you obey all my commands, this is God to Adam, you will gain eternal life, eternal blessedness, and the ongoing uninterrupted presence of God without even the possibility of sin. There was a probationary period. We don't know how long it was. But if Adam had been obedient to this covenant of works, he and all of his descendants after him would have enjoyed eternal life without even the possibility of sin. Here's kind of an outline of the covenant. The obligation for the covenant was perfect obedience. So that's what God offered to Adam. You perfectly obey me. Here's the reward, eternal life without even the possibility of sin or death. Now, the punishment for the violation of this covenant is eternal separation from God. Well, Adam actually entered into that covenant for and on behalf of all of humanity. Yeah, he entered into that covenant on our behalf. And when Adam failed to keep the covenant with God, which we talked about a moment ago, he rebelled against God, sinned against God, ate of the forbidden fruit. Now, God could have very well punished for etern all eternity everyone who had ever come from Adam. But by his grace and because of his mercy, even though Adam was the head or the representative of all of mankind, and the condemnation that Adam suffered should be the plight of every human being, um, God sent his son to fulfill the obligations of that covenant for us. In our place, which would include living for us as our representative, Christ being the last Adam. So this is what Paul means when he says that Christ was born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Christ subjected himself to the whole law. He obeyed the whole law as our substitute to free us from the law's condemnation. So how is God with us? Here's the second way. Jesus Christ is our ever-present defense. When I say he's our defense, I don't mean necessarily in terms of fighting our battles, although I think that's, you know, there's some truth in that, so I think that's a fine way to talk about it. I'm talking about something else as our defense. When I was, when I was a freshman in high school, we had a quarterback on the football team who was uh, really hailed as the next one. He was the next big thing. And uh, and, and my high school actually sent uh, some guys to the NFL, including one NFL quarterback. So this wasn't that far-fetched that this guy could be, you know, the next big thing. Well, during the uh, leading up to, the, to his, uh, the season, the football season, he had a neck injury. His name was Chris Bassetti. He had a neck injury. 
And so this is, you know, this is 19, I don't know what, 85 or six. And so this is before a lot of technology. So he had to wear one of these, um, it was a neck kind of a brace, but it had all these poles sticking out and, and all these wires. It looked like his head was in jail, you know, but the rest of his body wasn't. It was just like this big contraption. Well, he would sit in, you know, he was in my gym class. And one day, you know, he couldn't participate and he would sit off to the side. And one day we were playing volleyball and I was never that good at volleyball, but I could really spike it. I could really spike it pretty hard. And so, you know, we're playing volleyball and Chris Pacetti's over sitting alongside the walls of the gym. And I got up and I spiked one that was just, I mean, it was pretty powerful if I do say myself. And it went right for Chris Pacetti's prison, you know, in, in head, his head in prison. And it was just, it was ferocious. And there were a couple of guys who were on the football team, linebackers or whatever. They had to be restrained because they, they tried to attack me. Because they felt like, and I couldn't control what I was doing. It was just, you know, just spiked as hard as I could. Well, for the next couple of weeks, I had to get three of my friends, um, Billy Schisler, Todd Reeder, and Mike Williams, to watch out for these guys because they were always trying to, uh, you know, they were lurking around the corners to attack me. So I said to these guys, you guys are my defense. That's one kind of defense, right? You know, warding off against uh, evil that may encroach against us. But I'm talking about a different kind of defense. One day, every single one of us will stand before God. This is a holy God who, has, who sees everything, hears everything, knows everything, and we will have to give an answer for everything we've ever done. Not just everything we've ever done, but everything we've said, every thought we've ever entertained, everything that we've spoken, we will have to give a defense. And there's only one defense that will succeed against God, you know, against God's examination of us, so to speak. And it will not be, as so many have said, it will not be, well, I tried to live a good life. That won't work. It will not be, as so many have said, I've done more good things than bad things. That, that won't work. It won't be, well, I was in church, or as some people have said, I went to this church and that church, or I was in a Baptist church and this church. None of that stuff's going to work. For those who trusted in Jesus during their earthly life, their defense will be the only one that will prevail, and that is that Jesus not only died for me, but he lived for me, and he was raised for me. Jesus, by his own will, came under the law. That's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 4. Christ submitted himself to the law and obeyed it perfectly so that all those who believe in him could be redeemed or set free from the law and its condemnation. Jesus is God with us in that he is our defense every time we sin. There's a song we sing here at Capshaw, God, I need you. And one of the lines says that my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. If you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is your ever-present defense. And so on those days when you say something you wish you wouldn't have, and as soon as it left your mouth, you wish you could take it back, the law says you're condemned. You're forever condemned. The gospel says Jesus' speech was only pure and holy and perfect 
And God, by faith, looks at Jesus' speech as your own. In those moments when you've, you've done something you shouldn't have, you've looked at something you shouldn't have, you've responded to one of your kids in a way you shouldn't have, the law says you are forever condemned. But the gospel says Jesus always and only responded perfectly and patiently and sinlessly. And God sees his record as your own by faith. The law says you're condemned. Because you can never live up to the standard that God provided. And yet the gospel says that every time we fail to do what is right, or every time we do what is wrong, there is Christ as our defense who has been perfectly obedient on our behalf. Now look at verse 6 again. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So the letter of Galatians was written at a time when slavery was everywhere, not the, um, the slavery that, of you know, 17th century, 18th century North America that we're uh, accustomed to reading about, but it was a slavery of a different sort. In the ancient world, a person be- could become a slave any number of ways. A person could be sold into slavery be- because he or she was unwilling to pay a debt. A person could be born into slavery because his or her parents were themselves slaves. A person could become a captive of war and and therefore become a slave. Um, And a slave had no personal relationship with the owner. Theirs was strictly a, what what you might call a business arrangement. It was a relationship marked by one thing primarily, and that was conditionality. So in other words, if a slave was loyal, if a slave was obedient, if a slave uh, fulfilled his or her tasks, then the slave would be rewarded. If the slave was not loyal, the slave was unfaithful. If the slave messed up in any way, then the slave would receive the severest punishment and sometimes even be brandished into, sold into slavery. But the relationship of a son is actually marked by unconditionality. The son is loved not because of what he does, but because he is a son. Of course, the same is true of a daughter. She is loved not because of how she behaves, not because of her record, not because of her obedience or respect or anything like that. She is loved because she is a daughter. And Paul says that Jesus Christ, by his obedient life and death in our place, has caused us to be adopted as sons and daughters. So no longer is our relationship based on conditionality. If you do this, then that will happen. Now it is a relationship based on God's unconditional love for his own children. So if you've trusted in Jesus, you can't get any more saved than you are now. And you can't get any less saved than you are now. If you've trusted in Jesus, you can't get any more loved than you are now. You can't get any less loved than you are now. This is not a relationship based on conditionality, but on the unconditional love of God for his own. Your status is secure, and it's a status that is not just secured by Jesus, but also assured by Jesus. This is what Paul means Jesus makes us sons and daughters, and he assures us that we are sons and daughters. So here's the final way that God is with us in Christ. Jesus is the constant confirmation of our status as sons and daughters of God. 
because in our lives, everything is marked by conditionality, it's kind of hard for us to even understand what unconditional love looks like. Because this is the way we live our lives, based on conditionality. You eat your vegetables, you get dessert. If you work hard in school, you get good grades. If you're a good driver, you get a discount on your insurance. If you pay your bills on time, you get a good credit rating. Everything in our lives is based on conditionality. That's just the way the world works. And I'm not saying all those things are bad. I wish my kids were good drivers so I could get the good driver discount. I'm not saying that it's all bad. But conditionality would be a bad thing if God's love for us operated that way. God's love for us does not change for those who are in Christ. And as Jesus assures us of this, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic, a term of intimacy and familiarity. That's why uh, when we cry out to God, we cry out to him as someone who knows us and loves us, not sort of a cold, distant father. Abba is also a word said with boldness. It's not said with clenched teeth. It's not said out of fear. It's not said with reluctancy. We cry out with boldness with the expectation that we'll, we will be heard. Why? One, because we know that God our Father will hear it from his sons and daughters. And two, because we know that our Abba, our cry Abba speaks louder and louder than any word of condemnation ever could. And I love what Martin Luther says, and I'll bring this to a close with this. Luther says, let the law, sin, and the devil cry out against us until their outcry fills heaven and earth. The Spirit of God outcries them all. Our feeble groans, Abba, Father, will be heard of God sooner than the combined racket of hell, sin, and the law. Everywhere we go, we hear the word of condemnation. You're too fat. You're too skinny. You're too slow. You're, you'll never be enough. You'll never change. God is displeased with you, but Jesus assures us that when God sees us, he sees Jesus' faithful obedience to us. Jesus' words say, as Maggie sang so beautifully this morning, come all you unfaithful, come all you weak and unstable, come bitter and broken, come with fears unspoken, come guilty and hiding ones, there's no need to run. See what your God has done. Christmas is not for the faithful. There are none. Christmas is for the unfaithful. When the angel announced the good news of glad tidings of great joy at Jesus' birth, it wasn't good news. You're an amazing person and you have totally fulfilled God's law. No, it was good news. Christ is born for sinners. Let's pray.